Welcome to Super Serious Film Fest, our theme series of movie reviews. This season covers the best and the worst of Nick Cage. The summer and winter of his career. In what we're calling Season of the Cage. The Weatherman, a 2005 film directed by Gore Verbinski, stars Nick Cage as David Spritz, a Chicago-area weatherman living under the shadow of his Pulitzer Prize-winning father, a stereotypical great man played by Michael Caine. Professionally, he's doing quite well as he entertains a national offer from Bryant Gumbel. That's right, THE Bryant Gumbel, played by, and you may find the shocking, Bryant Gumbel. But personally, his life is a wreck as family trouble, health scares, and a constant stream of thrown fast food batter him, both physically and mentally. Throughout the film, Dave will make several attempts to find a center. Relationship counseling, attempting to be a bigger part of his children's lives, sorting things out, and getting it together to win his father's approval. And when all else fails, archery. This movie is about a man's struggle to come to grips with the fact that sometimes things don't go the way you might have planned, that no one is the master of their fate, and that life can be about more than just sucking and chucking and jerking and fucking up jim i thought this was a pretty great movie uh had a lot of interesting themes that personally resonated with me what do you think yeah i agree with that i actually think it's a very very well constructed film mm -hmm. uh, a lot of really good use of callbacks um the sense of comedic timing is perfect mm -hmm. uh it's it's very dry but it, it got a laugh out of me every time they went for it uh, it's a very quirky film, too, from, you know, the performances to the soundtrack to, you know, its sense of comedy. Uh, I really like this movie a lot. I've seen it now probably four or five times, uh, and every time it just somehow gets better to me. No, I mean, I think that the performances are really great. It's got some really good child actor performances. It stars, you know, Michael Caine. I usually think of Michael Caine as like a pretty warm fellow. But he's just drained all that out of this performance. And it's like he's just not completely uncaring, but sev kind of severe and judgmental just by comparison. Huh. Like, you know, Interesting. like he's this great man. He served in the war and he's this famous author and he's awarded and decorated and wealthy. And his son is just kind of wealthy. And he's, uh, you know, like like feels like a fraud as a as a weatherman. Like this movie, I think, can be an uncomfortable watch because Nick Cage is behaving just terribly. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not one of those movies that kind of validates that. Uh, it's more of a movie. By the end, you see that like accepting some of this stuff that's just never going to change, and that he's fucked up beyond repair. And we all can't be the heroes that we thought we'd be. And maybe being heroic is looks so, like something completely different um, mm -hmm. than, than, than it was in the case of her father's. Uh, yeah, I, I'll give it two flying frosties. Two flying frosties, and uh, I'll throw it a big gulp. 64 <laughs> ounce, mind you, not these shitty 44 ounces. Right, super big gulp. And not diet either. That's it's just a, just a orange soda coming at you, 700 calories. What are you going to do? Man, there's some really great imagery like, I felt like the way the movie kind of opens and closes with the scene of these, like, that semi-frozen Lake Michigan, mm -hmm. like, really describes, like, how buttoned down, like, Nick Cage is. Like, he tries to conduct himself like his father when he has, like, his father seems like everything in his life is kind of under control. Yeah. Um, we see, soon see that that's, that's not the case at all, um... But but he he's kind of got this affectation, whereas Nick Cage is his life is in constant chaos. He's 
He's lost his wife and he's in denial about it. He's losing his children. Mm-hmm. Um, he thinks he's a fraud at work. And like that image of a semi-frozen Lake Michigan, I think was super cool because he's not beyond redemption. There could be a chance of a thaw. It's not just completely blocked in. Yeah, they have absolutely nailed, in my opinion, the theme, the setting, and the metaphors in this movie. Um, right. th- this idea of a, of a frosty Chicago uh, very much feels like it's both chaotic and mm-hmm. also frozen at the same mm-hmm. time in yeah. place, which I feel like describes Nick Cage's character. Sure. There's this layer of ice and we can see it on, you know, the, the archery targets that he's shooting at. Um, that just is kind of over Nick Cage, keeping him from doing anything, making any progress. Uh, and the idea that he is a weatherman, that, mm-hmm. that he's trying to predict something and master something that can't, actually be mastered and right. predicted right and it's that's a chaotic how he, system right it extends and they they say that in the movie because uh, it's, it's just wind it's wind it blows all over the place what the fuck uh and i feel like at some point he understands what you know that means to his own life mm-hmm. uh but throughout the movie he's struggling with that concept of i just want to know it all i want to keep it under control and and things will be good if i can do that yeah and by the end of the movie where he finally you know the the frost thaws and he goes to New York and he gets this job and he comes to terms with who he is mm-hmm. um, and what that means uh, for his life. I think, I think it's excellent. And then you throw in the archery stuff with the, the idea of focusing because um, throughout the movie he's considered or he's portrayed as this very scatterbrained person. Yeah. Right. Dave is, he's not exactly a fuck up. Like he's good at some things uh, like mastering the green screen, for instance. Uh, but th- there's this, constant level of scatterbrainness that that is him that he can't quite get past but by the end of the movie he does and the archery certainly helps with that yeah i (laughs) i felt personally attacked at the scene where he's trying to get uh tartar sauce i heard you tartar sauce what happened to the guy who was trying to go around the world in a balloon did he make it i should put some espionage or stolen plutonium in my novel tartar sauce spice it up neil young Fuck, it's cold. Neil Young. What, why am I thinking about Neil Young? Neil Diamond. Neil. There's not a lot of famous Neils. Is this Wednesday? I wish I had two dicks. There we go. Anything else? No. But, like, I literally did that same thing to my wife the night before, uh, where, like, I was going upstairs. She's, hey, while you're up there, go grab such and such a load of laundry. And I went and changed into my pajamas and forgot the clothes. And she didn't even say anything. I just saw, like, 15 minutes later, I saw her silently walk by with the clothes. I'm like, fuck, man, you're fucking up. Uh, so I don't... I, I, I really identify with some of the struggles that David is going through here. This nice, efficient five-minute scene tells you their entire relationship, right? And what's really instructive about this scene is that everything leading up to it has really illuminated the the, the base lies he's telling his wife. Because mm-hmm. he says he starts off in the start of the movie, it's like, you know, my job's pretty easy. I It's like two and a half hours of work, if you can call it that. Uh-huh. I'm not a meteorologist. I have a meteorologist tell me what's going to happen, and I just point at the green screen and do it. So, like, the difference between me and Dave is, is, like, when I fucked up the laundry the other night, I'm like, oh, shit, you got to, like, redouble and start paying more attention. Like, this is a warning sign. This is a personal red flag. This isn't an excuse to just be like, ah, fuck it, you know, whatever, I'm busy. Yeah, I think the most identifiable part of his struggle, to me at least, right. was this idea of 
the narrowing options that are presented to you as as you get further into your life. And that's, I think, both a good thing and a bad thing, right? There's this idea of, you know, if, if you're a man, the Renaissance man mm-hmm. yeah. um, who is good at everything, you know, yeah. and, and he can just seem to do it all. Uh, and that's very much at odds with, I think, the message of this movie, which is the focus, the idea of being the person you are and not trying to be something else mm-hmm. that you think other people want you to be or that you personally think you should be. Because uh, this movie is very much a war within Nick Cage's own head, a war right. of his own construction that he's fighting. Right. Uh, and I think it's to try and be everything to everyone. And only only when he focuses up and says, this is who I actually am, can yeah. he find peace. You're supposed to understand, right, that a lot of what's going on with David is a reaction to his relationship with his father. Absolutely. I, I think this movie centers around an inferiority complex that he has. Yeah. Uh, he's definitely living in the shadow of a great... What, what he perceives even as a great man. And mm-hmm. I, I don't want to argue too much with the idea that Robert is a great man. Right. But he's a great man in a very specific arena mm-hmm. and that is the arena of writing the or the arena of being an author mm-hmm. uh he didn't try and, and at some point in the movie you can you can uh track that because robert says look i'm an author that's what i do mm-hmm. that's my thing uh and and he almost tells nick cage look you need to not try and be the thing that i am yeah be the thing that you are and don't try to be the everything right well, and I think that some things his father did directly feed into that. If you read between the lines, like the first time we meet Michael Caine's character, he is just a nonstop criticism of the children. Who's an angel? Shelley. Shelley is grossly overweight and unhappy. I'm concerned about her, as I am Michael. How much of that did David hear? Like when David started showing like flashes of interest that maybe his father didn't approve of, is it like, you know, did he hear, well, you can't do that, David, because you're too clumsy or, you know, David, you can't do that because you're not as big and strong. Uh, I I had a very different view of Robert in this Hmm. movie. Um, And I think it's the view that the movie was trying to give us. And I will talk about how I think the acting a little bit betrayed this, but Mm. Uh, I think the movie very much, even the protagonist is trying to tell us, look, Robert was a very good father. Robert had his shit on lock in the author arena. He was a very good father. He was concerned yeah. for his children. Yes. Yeah. But he he doesn't come across to me as like overly concerned or pushy or nitpicky. He's more like, these are the big concerns I have about this family. And he goes to his son and he, he voices those concerns, uh-huh. but he's not in there trying to mix shit up and stir shit up, right? And, and tell him how to get it under control. He's just saying, these are the problems I see. You should do something about them. Yeah. And, and when Nick Cage, you know, an, an obvious fuck up at this point in the uh-huh. movie says, oh, yeah, I got, I'll get it. I, I just got to I got to get with my daughter and I got to change her mind and make her love me and mm-hmm. everything will be good. Mm-hmm. Michael Caine doesn't roll his eyes like he should and, mm-hmm. and say, oh, sure, buddy. Yeah, that'll happen. He's he goes, OK, I do. I don't know. That felt that felt like the kind of things that would be little slings and arrows that would destroy your confidence and make it or if it make it seem like you're living up to an already impossible ideal. I don't think Michael Caine did it on purpose. I think he's a bad, bad man. I just think that, you know, he's an old guy that is living by different rules, you know, but I don't know, like maybe, maybe his daughter and his son will at the end be happier and more well-adjusted than David was not, not growing up in the shadow of, cause like whatever David becomes, he's not, I don't think going to be a great man. Like Brian Gumbel yeah. isn't a great man. 
No, no, no. Brian Gumbel's an entertainer. He's not doing great things, right? He's yeah. He's a very popular. He's person. popular and he's important, and uh-huh. he's like you know. But like great men, great women are reserved for like the Harriet Tubmans of the world and the right. the people who don't get pies thrown at them. Yeah. <laughs> What's really interesting is like there's not a big shift in who he is at the beginning of the movie and who he is at the end of the movie, right? No, no. I think it's it's a shift in his perception of himself. Right. Not not who he actually is. Right. That I can be like a weirdo. Like, if I want to be, I can be the guy that is walking around New York City with a bow and arrow, um, which may also deter things be- getting thrown at you. Uh, if you think that maybe something can get thrown back at, you know, 400 feet per second. <laughs> right. Uh, how much of this movie is him being emotionally backed up because his wife left him? And, not, and it's a huge part. And, and the fact that how in denial, like he's thinking that, like, as she's planning to marry her, you know, fiance, I guess, um... Like, he's still wanting to, like, get back together. Like, come to me with New York, and this will fix everything. More and, money, right? Yeah. He's already making plenty of money. Yeah. He's and, making 200 and something thousand a year. He thinks 1.2 is going to fix a problem. Right. And she's like, I don't love you. I can't remember when I love you. In fact, I hate you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like, how could he think that? that was something that could that 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 could happen it's almost like that's the one thing that bothers me is like just a little bit how delusional he is but he's a weird guy like they make it clear when they're doing this montage of how cushy his life is he's making quarter mill in in chicago he's got a very nice like home alone style family home but he's there's this one scene where he's at like a beer festival as abraham lincoln Mm -hmm. i receive a large reward for pretty much zero effort and contribution the shakes and stuff are a reaction to that, I think. But he's not taking any pleasure or passion in this. Yeah. Like... It, almost because it's too easy. Like, he, he's in that scene, he's describing how easy things are for mm, him. But, like, you know, what's hard is remembering the fucking tartar sauce when you don't give a shit mm. about it and you're scatterbrained. Or putting in time, uh, you know, like, making... Like, like, keeping promises that you make to your friends and family. The hard work of actually maintaining a relationship... Um, he doesn't want to do, but the easy stuff of just, you know, sexual conquests and climbing the corporate weather ladder are things he's utterly uninterested in and don't, don't motivate him to the extent that he almost, there's this really great scene of like his son visiting him on the weekend and him just sitting there ignoring phone calls from this lucrative offer that he's actually said that he's pinned all his hopes on and he's just going to let it die by apathy. Like, what a hell of a thing. Yeah, it makes me wonder what made Dave the way he is. Uh, and I know some of that is is living in the shadow of his great father. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think another big part of that is, like I said, how easy everything is for him. You know, mm-hmm. when you have a great father who makes a lot of money and is able to give you many opportunities and, and kind of just let you sail through life. I mean, most people would kill for his job, right? right? You work two hours a day, you make a quarter million dollars. Most people w- would kill for that job. And Nick Cage, da- David, in this movie, simply gets it, you mm-hmm. know, for no effort. He hasn't earned a degree in order to get where he is. Uh, actually, yeah. no, he does have a degree, but it's not in meteorology, yeah. right? Um, he-, he seems to get everything he wants very easily. And on the flip side of that, when he doesn't get what he wants, he has no idea why and he has no idea how to go about getting it Hmm. because he's lost you know his family he has no idea how to go about fixing that 
Yeah. Because he's never had to work hard for anything in his life. I, it's, it's interesting because there's another th- scene where he's parked outside his old house and he's looking at it. It's like, look at this big, nice, like it's, it's a home alone house. Look at this house. Someone should be happy here. How did I fuck this up? Seriously. What if I remembered the tartar sauce? You know, those are great questions. And the the, fi- the fact that he he really fucks up the therapy. Uh, they go to this kind of like hokey group therapy. It's almost like a team building exercise. Yeah. And, you know, he fucks up. He fucks up everything right from the jump. But he, for whatever reason, like really embraces this archery thing. Reminded me a lot of like focused meditation. Absolutely. That's what it is. And you can see even in the, the fabric of the film. And this is why mm-hmm. I say it's such a well-constructed film mm-hmm. is because even uh, you can see in Robert's scenes how everything is just calmer and mm-hmm. quieter. And then you get Nick Cage in his scenes and everything is chaotic, right? People are honking horns. It's snowing. He's driving. He's thinking. Right. It's all a jumble. This That's what the archery in this movie is there to do is to focus him. Right. You know, it's it's also like there's a, a other metaphor where Nick Cage is kind of like, lies make him look worse like for the classic example is his father said hey i'm going in this lab would you get me caught would you get me a newspaper when i'm out where's the paper david i didn't have enough money you bought a coffee yeah that and then i didn't have enough money after you should carry more than a dollar david you're a grown man he just looks like such an asshole. And there's a couple mm-hmm. times where he does, does that with his father, his children, and his wife. And it's like, man, if you would just, like, be a little less tight under the collar about looking like a fuck-up every once in a while, yeah. then, you know... The movie doesn't help him much with that, though. Mm-hmm. I will say it is almost a series of of tragic comedy moments because... Every time he gets into a bad situation and fucks up and he's Mm -hmm. talking about dildos and he's like cursing in front of his daughter. There's Michael Caine to witness it, right? There's his father to see him at his absolute worst when he's shouting at his wife on the phone every single time without fail, which I think is hilarious, but it almost seems like the world is not playing fair with this man. Yeah. There's just a lot of cool subtleties between the relationship with him and his father. Like, for example... So he's going to give a eulogy, a pre-eulogy, at his father's uh, living funeral. When I think of my dad, I think of Bob Seger's Like a Rock. Like a week later, his father comes by and he's like, I want you to explain something to me. And he's listening to this Bob Seger song. And he's like, this doesn't sound like me. And... You know, Nick Cage explains like, well, it's it's the chorus about how you were strong and you're like this rock like figure to the family. I think it's not an accident that that's where kind of uh, Michael Caine breaks down and says, you know, like we have never seen a crack in his armor before. Yeah. But he says, you know, David and this shit life, which was all, it's itself shocking because you get the get the impression this guy doesn't swear a lot. Shit. Shit. Fuck. Hello. More dildo, more fucking sucking and chucking and jacking of fucking. And then the way that he views, like, he's, this is Michael Caine, Pulitzer Prize winning, wealthy guy that lives in a mansion in Chicago. Uh, 
but he's describing the life as shit. There are t- there are things that you must chuck, and like I wonder what that meant to Michael Caine. Like, what are the things that he chucked? Because we know from David's narration that he didn't chuck his family, he didn't chuck his writing responsibilities. Uh, uh, I think he chucked everything else, which allowed him to have such a a steady and focused life. Hmm. Right. Th- this idea, because it's all in the context of him writing this book. Um, trying to be his father essentially Mm. and so he says like when he says yeah i threw out the writing that i was doing he he doesn't say good because it sucks what he says is there are some things you must chuck Mm. to become essentially the person you need to be in order to get through this shit life yeah uh with with some dignity yeah, I was just I was trying to think if there's any uh, thing in the movie that points to like the like what is the deal with Michael? Because again, on the margins, there are some things I could criticize the man on, but mm-hmm. you know, what are the things that he had to sacrifice? What are his regrets at the end of his life? Maybe he doesn't have any. Uh, he's fairly old, Michael Caine. He's distinguished and successful, and he has a nice. Seems like he has a nice family. Yeah, I think we are going to attempt to rewrite this movie or at least make some tweaks and improvements yeah. later on. Yeah. Uh, but that's maybe one of the things that I would look further into is Nick Cage's or David's background a little bit with his father. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to understand a little bit more about Robert. I think it's interesting how they try to explain why David's getting this shit thrown at him. And he has this long fantasy sequence of imagining someone watching him at home. What kind of name is Spritz? It's a bullshit name. It's a TV name. He's bullshit. It seems like that's not the case. What it seems like is that uh, Dave Spritz just is an asshole to the people he meets. Like, he's resentful of the fact that he's the weather guy. And, you know, when people come at, you know, like the shtick that he started, uh, like, you know, the, the nipper. What's the nipper this week? He just fucking hates it when people come up and ask him the nipper. So I think it's important to note that he doesn't like the nipper either. And that he didn't start the nipper. It's a thing that he's forced to do by mm-hmm. the network. Mm-hmm. But but changing his name, I think, is important, right? Like, well, I mean, at some point, he had to go along with that. I, well, I think... Yeah, and, I'm, and it's successful. Like, he is, is, he's yeah. getting the Al Roker position on this fictitious good, you know, Hello America, because he has these flares and these, like, you know, Al Roker was hired because he's Al fucking Roker, not because he's some boring beige dude from the suburbs like he's yeah. kooky and he wears crazy costumes he doesn't doesn't care about uh you know embarrassing himself and i i feel like there's a little bit of this the weather guy he's stood out because he does do the nipper and he does have his lot and he, he has like a lot of color and that's what's made him successful i agree and he's resistant to the idea that that's what he is now yeah um he's he's still looking for all those other avenues that he describes as narrowing you know those those people he could be uh, he doesn't want to just be the weatherman at the beginning of this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I absolutely love the number one thing I love about this movie is the fast food stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there are, it, this is another one of those things that I think is expertly crafted in this movie because right. they don't start off with this montage of, of they, they could, they could start the movie with this montage of him getting hit with all this food to kind of explain to us this happens regularly, but they let this build so masterfully throughout the course of the movie and they do it just often enough to where they, they set it up and they go, okay, he gets hit with the, uh, the shake or whatever it is. Right. And then they let it, they let it just sit for a good 20 minutes or whatever. 
and you don't even see the next one coming. The big gulp to the face when he's talking to his wife. I, I'm not even sure how these people are identifying him in these situations because mm-hmm. they, they identify him from the rear, which... I got to think as a view of a weatherman you don't get very often. Yeah. And they identify him when he's sitting in his fucking car. Uh-huh. And they're just ready, ready with the food. But but they let it linger just long enough to where I forget that it's going to happen. Right. Even when I know that, oh, yeah, this is the movie where he gets hit with food. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then by the time they get to the the montage of him getting hit by food, mm-hmm. you that's the one thing you want in this life. Right. Like, I just want to see a montage of Nick Cage getting hit with food of Gore Verbinski, which I found out in the trivia on IMDb that he actually is the one who threw the food. Oh, yeah. In the montage. Very Sam Raimi. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh Uh, That's the number one thing I want to see in my life. And I can't die without seeing it. And they finally give it to you. And it's just like this climax of food, fast food to the face porn Mm -hmm. that oh man it's perfect he's wearing different outfits he's in different situations he's like yeah i will say nick cage is a master at taking a taco to the chin like that guy does not flinch when it's incoming and he knows it that's the thing that i thought was amazing is like it's all shot in close focus slow-mo and he leaves his face completely vulnerable and like we talked about like Getting it with 64, in- 64 inches, 64 <laughs> ounces of fluid is not nothing. No, that's a stunt. Yeah, that's like someone throwing a half gallon of milk at you. <laughs> right. That can do some damage, you know? It's, <laughs> sure like, it's, like, it's like when he hit, and there's also like an interesting thing where he throws that snowball at his wife. Yeah, this ties in, doesn't it? I think so. Like, that these people don't see this as like a hostile act. It's almost like... You know, like like if you ever go to like an amusement park and, you know, there's a building that that the the, the roller coaster drives over. Right. And what's on that roof? It's a bunch of shit. Fucking yeah, and, and, and coins and so, and it's not because it's rattled out. So like people like, you know, like one person threw a cut quarter there and a person saw it and like, oh, that's something to do. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, like throwing snowballs at people like that's not fun unless you're a child or doing it with children like you, you want to piss off an adult. Just hit him with the snowball out of nowhere. Right. But he does it. And then she turns around, hits her square in the fucking face. Yeah. Like, again, it's like I, there's something there's some commonality there that I'm not quite sure of. I don't think you need to because it works on an emotional level. It does. Like it's like a karmic thing that like he gets to be the throwy and. You know, she's kind of like low key, the Nick Cage that runs up at the hot apple pie and is like, look what you did. Look what you did. <laughs> um, I have to see my kids. I do th- shit on my coat. <laughs> I do think it's interesting that like I'm kind of amazed at how much composure he has at most of this. Um, ver- you know, like these gross physical insults and he barely has a reaction unless he's talking on the phone with his wife. and He's already worked up. But fairly mild criticism that's right on. He's just like, oh, how do you dare? How dare you do this? I thought archery was a very good metaphor, not just for meditation, but, you know, archery is something that like there's a whole bunch of little things you have to do right to get to the end result you desire. And that's kind of it's like, you know, his daughter wants to hunt animals. She's not willing to put in all the little effort to get the arrow to go where it wants, and she's not going to get the thing that she wants to do, which is to hunt and kill animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, the metaphor of towards the end of the movie when he's starting to get good at archery and he's hitting these targets and they're covered in ice, but it's breaking the ice. Yeah. Like this process is actually starting to heal him. 
It's so, so good. And there's, over the course of this movie, there's a spread out montage of him getting much, much better at archery, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and they save the final bullseye for the very end of the movie. Um, and it takes in the dark places because right in the middle of him getting good, he almost killed his wife's boyfriend. Yeah, I was going to ask you, do you think he could have shot Russ in that moment? I mean, accidentally. Yeah, I okay. mean, I mean, was was it his intention? Was it ever his intention to actually shoot Russ, or was he simply taking aim on a thing that he viewed as a problem? What's scary? Here's my answer to that. Because what I what I think is because you know that's an unknowable question. But what I think is scary is when you listen to him describe the process of slapping him in the face with those leather gloves. I feel like there's a voice. There's an alternate universe voiceover. That happens maybe 50% of the time where he's explaining how he just accounted for gravity and judged for wind and loosed it like it's the most nat and like he almost like surprised himself. And that's what's terrifying about it because he has no emotional, emotional control. Do you know that the harder thing to do and the right thing to do are usually the same thing? Nothing that has meaning is easy. Easy doesn't enter into grown-up life. Easy doesn't enter into grown-up life. This is a particularly dour take on adulthood that I don't necessarily ascribe to. I definitely think that you have to make difficult choices as an adult, but if your life is all difficult choices, you've done you're 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 fucking up a lot probably. Like you've you've got a you've you've been dealt an exceptionally bad hand or you're living in in a society that is is cold and brutish and unfeeling or you're also or you're just making a bad a bunch of bad personal choices or all of the above but like the whole idea that like you should have to white knuckle life that's not something that i think is right i think that maybe keep keeps people trapped in destructive patterns what do you think it could yeah um and i think that that's also a way to sort of drive yourself crazy you know if i think one of michael cain's releases is writing and i think he's had the luxury he to have the shit out of his wife well yeah beats I mean, the shit out of his wife obviously uh <laughs> we, we don't see her but one scene and right. she's heavily made up so that's right and she just kind of she kind of she just kind of cowers in the wings in every scene that she's right in. <laughs> uh so i think he's had the luxury of having fallen into the thing that gives him sanctuary and gives him release mm. uh in in writing yeah and i don't know that Dave found that same place. It's weird that like David is judging his own life from a purely utilitarian basis, but he doesn't he doesn't judge his father like like if he judged his father's life like that, then you'd have similar conclusions. Sure. The I think the the grounding part for everyone here is this idea that as you get further into your life, the options of who you can be narrow because that's true for everyone, right? Universally. Is it- like, yeah, I I fully believe that there are just things that happen, events that occur in your life that change the course of your life irrevocably. Uh, you know, having a kid uh, is something that changes you forever. Sure. Uh, and Michael Caine makes that point when he says there's always, always something to taking do. Care. Always, always, always taking, taking care. care. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's so poignant because this man who's on his deathbed is still taking care you know up to the moment he dies he's going to be taking care of his family of his business um and i think that is the thing that tracks and that is the thing that becomes sympathetic and can identify uh dave with everyone 
while it's true that there's things that happen in your life to irrevocably change you and close down opportunities, there's also things that happen in your life that present more opportunities. And I don't think it's like there's ever a point until you die that's a zero sum game. Like I have collapsed, like Nick Cage's thesis that in his mid 40s, I've collapsed into to a singularity of me as a weatherman. I that doesn't that doesn't seem to track you. You definitely like when you're a baby, there's like almost infinite possibilities of what you could be. And then like, you know, when you get into midlife, there are certain restraints on you and restrictions on what you can do as far as, you know, you know, moving, retooling career. But like a lot of those are just they're not restrictions so much as people unwilling to contemplate that level of change. Well, I think one of the things the movie is trying to say as well is that it can be the very idea of this limitless possibility, like this Mm -hmm. limitless sea of possibilities of who you could be that could make you unhappy. Yeah. Because that's what Nick Cage is experiencing at the beginning. He's trying to figure out who the hell he's going to be, what's going to make him happy. And I think by the end, you know, the movie has said there's a path that you can take where you can be happy as long as you're willing to accept that that's who you are. He doesn't like being a weatherman. But he accepts being a weatherman and making that choice allows him like you see at the end of the movie, he's being a better father to his children. He's coming home every weekend instead of every other weekend. And you get the opinion that he misses a lot of those weekends um, and tries to like do way too much stuff in those weekends. But like he's a better man for changing uh, or accepting the change that he's that's being thrust upon him. Like I said, it, it doesn't seem like a guy whose possibilities have collapsed down to one. It sounds like a guy who had several possibilities and decided this is the best one to go on. Yeah, that's fair. Um, can we talk about him beating up the pedophile drug therapist? Um, you say pedophile drug therapist. I just say guy who got way too stoned. Because <laughs> there's no way a man who talks like, oh, you guys are here shopping for sweaters. Fuck. You're just looking for clothes. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. I'm looking for clothes. I'm here shopping for sweaters, too. (laughs) Like, a new wrinkle of the universe just unfolded in his brain. Uh Uh-huh. Is not stoned out of his fucking mind. (laughs) Uh, Do you... When you get stoned out of your mind, do you have an irresistible urge to take shirtless photos of 15-year-olds flexing? I mean, people react to drugs in different (laughs) ways. And while... No, I don't. Yeah. I mean, maybe this guy does. Ask your doctor if marijuana is right for you <laughs> in like 20 of the 50 states. And the other is, stay the fuck away, it's the devil's weed. <laughs> uh, I I don't know. Like I, I thought that was like, I mean, this is just heinous. You got this guy who's a youth counselor and he's he's molesting kids. Right. And it's played as a moment of triumph that Nick just beat his ass and that's it. Because now he's going to lick his wounds and get another kid and start plying, start grooming him and... You know, God, God knows what happens if a parent's not not paying too much attention. It, it is a weird moment of like personal vindication and triumph or like a, a victory note that I felt like, oh, no, this is exactly the wrong thing to do. Yeah, I think this is probably the weakest part of the movie, in mm-hmm. my opinion, um, and maybe something that didn't even need to be in there because mm-hmm. uh, I all it does at the end, at the conclusion of this storyline, when he beats the shit out of him is raise more questions for me. Like, yeah. is is that the end of it? Why would Michael not be in trouble with the police anymore just because yeah. he beat this guy's ass? Uh, 
is this guy going to go do this again to some other kid? What has this actually solved? And all those things are running through my head instead of what the movie wants me to feel, which is, like you said, that moment of triumph. Yeah. And like, yeah, there's like a weird scene where like Michael's like looking at his bloody fists and like, you know, kind of being general. Like, I guess it would feel good if you thought your dad tuned up a guy to try to assault you like that. Absolutely. Um, but it also feel good to see that guy go to prison mm-hmm. <laughs> and loses, you know, bare minimum, loses counseling job. Yeah. Uh, it's bad enough that your kid is 15 years old and d- doing illegal drugs, doing things that like maybe their brain chemistry isn't ready for. And also it's definitely going to hurt their school and he's getting in fights and getting into like the fact that your kid is just kind of hitting the skids is bad enough. Like, do you need to throw? He's also being molested by an older man into the mix. Yeah, um, and and the movie on almost every level goes for the mundane when yeah. it can, except for this one, which yeah. seems like beyond the pale. Yeah, exception. Yeah, I so agree. why not just stick with you know the kid is addicted to pot yeah because the daughter is like she's chubby and she doesn't know how to dress and she's going through the awkward teenage and she's getting a little bullied but she's not getting raped by a male teacher or a janitor you know like i thought i already thought that the kid was already going through pretty extreme things and then they throw and also the counselor is just like it's a stereotypical like this is what a child predator looks like He's not charming and slick and smooth. He's weird and awkward and even even his speech. Like, he would give you the creeps just talking to him. Yeah, I bet like, he has terrible forearms. <laughs> what the fuck? Like, that's not... I mean, you, you, child predators can look like that, but they can also mm. look like me or Jim or... They don't look like me. A, I, I've seen a pedo that looks like... He had a weird no. 70s mustache, granted. No. But yeah, no, he can he can look look like anyone. Your next door neighbor, your your trusted minister, it's true. Uh, the guy who works in accounting, like they're all the, anyone can do that shit. Uh, I, I don't know that that whole thing kind of rubbed me raw, and I wasn't sure how I'm supposed to feel about it, or the movie wanted me to feel about it. The, the other the I will say the other one thing that I thought maybe they slightly missed the mark on is over the course of this movie, I was getting the impression that the movie wanted me to think very highly of Robert. Um, mm-hmm. think that he was, in fact, a very good father. He's a concerned grandfather mm-hmm. who's making the right moves to try and get his son in line to, to you know, fix this problem with the, the grandkids. Uh, Michael Caine's acting betrays that just the slightest bit because I do feel like every time he delivers a line, it's almost with a vague hint of disapproval. <laughs> I think that's, I mean, that's so funny because I think that's like the whole point of the performance. You're supposed to understand that. I think it's a missed, a missed swing on a performance. Honestly, really? yeah, because I think the movie wants me to think highly of Robert. Hmm. I like I said. I I think I. To me, I think the point of Robert is uh, just like David, well-meaning, trying to do everything right, but he fucks up his kids in ways he can't even imagine. I think you're supposed to see Robert Rod Robert as the world sees him. But the way he interacts with David is a is a glimpse into how even that concerned, but not pushy, you know, gentle, but still judgmental, that kind of can sap your self-confidence and your your worth as a person because you'll never measure up to it. You know, it's it's interesting because like even when David made it to the pinnacle of his kind of career, like this is the, the equivalent of winning a Pulitzer for a, a Weatherman. His his dad kind of like almost sardonically says, there's more money than I ever made that salary that's quite an american accomplishment but what the fuck does that mean 
he was born to a wealthy, prominent writer and he got to a slightly higher rung in the social pop culture sphere. I think he's kind of sincere there. I think what he's saying is you found more success than I have, you know, and it's mm. not in an arena that you think I would approve of, but I do. And yeah. and it, it comes out at the funeral when, you know, uh, Dave is talking to Mike and he's he's talking about, oh, what are you going to be when you grow up? You're going to you're going to not going to take my job, are you? And Mike's mm. like, nah, I'm going to be a cameraman for Monday Night Football. Is that OK? Uh-huh. And Dave is like, yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely okay. And I th- I feel like, you know, as much as you can attribute like a judgmental sense of of like, you know, how people should live their lives or whatever. And if you want to say that that's passed down to Dave from his father, then one of the things that was passed down to Dave from his father was also this idea that you can be who you want to be. You don't need to be me. So I think there's there's a little bit of that tied up in in that relationship as well. Hmm. I think in summary, like this sh- this this movie does such such good work like thematically and and through imagery like we see david at the end on this float and we had this fantasy sequence of him being on this float and his family is with him and they're all doing well and uh, you know he's been healed by the magic of bryant gumble and and then you know we see this actual sequence of him doing this and his kids aren't there and his wife's not there and he says, like, he looks ahead and he goes, um, I'm right. I'm behind the fire department, which, you know, first responders, New York City, they're heroes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they are like all the kids are looking up to them and they're these large, like, they're even shot from a heroic angle as the floats going by. And he goes by in front of SpongeBob, who is like the cartoon character clown. Uh, and he's accepting it. Like, I'm not going to be my father, the war hero slash writer slash Pulitzer winner. But I'm also not going to be the guy getting pies thrown at me. Yeah. Um, And, you know, him, well, hello, America, like introducing himself as an authentic, you know, integrated person uh, for the first time. I thought that was a great way to end the the film. Hopefully a decent way to end the podcast. Season of the Cage. We hope you've enjoyed our Super Serious film review, but we're not quite done yet. A staple of our Super Serious reviews is our attempts to rewrite, update, and modernize the movies we watch. If you want to see how the rewrite for this movie turned out, head to club.baldmove.com or click the link in this video to sign up and get access to this and other bonus club content. 